Hi, everyone. I'm Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Cape Up. This week, my guest is Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. I flew down to Miami to talk with her in her district office, her first interview since her blowout Democratic primary win on August 30th and since her resignation under fire as chair of the Democratic National Committee. We talk all about it, including the rumor that President Obama personally called her to step down. That's absolutely untrue. That did not happen. Did not happen. Plus the contention that she put her thumb on the scale against Bernie Sanders. You know, for all the talk about how I supposedly put my thumb on the scale, there there certainly were times um, throughout the process where I, I really could have put my thumb on the scale. And then there's the other stuff like brains, her hair, a golden uterus, and brass balls. Yep, you heard me. And it's coming up right now. Congresswoman, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Um, Let's get right to it. So how hard was it for you to resign chairmanship of the DNC? You didn't want to do it, did you? You know, what I wanted was to make sure that all the work that we had done to put on what ultimately was the most successful political convention, I think, in modern presidential history, Uh, would not be um, forsaken and would not be marred by a debate over who the DNC chair was. Uh, You know, so that's what mattered to me the most ultimately. I mean, obviously, I loved doing that work and, you know, passionately committed myself to it for five and a half years and traveled the country. And anytime the president of the United States asks you to do anything. It's an honor. And so, of course, I loved doing that job. But I had a good run. I mean, I was the longest-serving chair in 50 years, the first woman nominated by a sitting president, helped re-elect the first African-American president, and helped prepare our party to nominate and eventually elect uh, the first woman president. So, of course, I would not have uh, chosen to finish my term as, as, uh, as chair in that way. But um, I, I haven't looked back. Mm-hmm. It, it was, but it wasn't a fun process to go through. Well, I, I know you haven't looked back, but I'm going to ask you to to look back. And, and to me, the seminal moment was when you spoke over the catcalls and the boos at that uh, Florida delegation breakfast. I think mm-hmm. it was on that first day. And I think by then you had already announced that you were going to that your resignation would be effective at the end of the convention. Yes. But there was still this question about whether you were going to gavel in the convention mm-hmm. at that point. Um, how shocked were you by the reception that you received at that breakfast? Well, you have to understand that the reception that I received at that breakfast from Floridians was a standing ovation. And so when I came into the room, the Florida delegation members stood and received me warmly. And unfortunately, what you had was about 30 people who busted into the room who were not from Florida. I mean, there may, be, may have been a few uh, that intentionally disrupted that delegation breakfast. And so um, it, I wasn't going to allow them to, uh, you know, to boo me off the stage. Um, I knew that the people that I was there to talk to, you know, the, my colleagues and friends and supporters uh, from Florida, um, know me. And I was going you know, to get my message to them. And then when I was finished, I left the stage. But um, what was clear to me was that uh, the... Um, disaffected supporters of 
Senator Sanders, who were not ready to accept the results of the primary, um, were intent, there were some that were intent on being as disruptive as possible. And so that, that made it clear to me um, at, after that point that, again, I, if I were going to be a lightning rod and if there was going to be more disruption than, than there even eventually was with my gaveling in or, or speaking, then taking myself out was, was to me the right thing to do. A lot of the Sanders folks, the Senator Sanders himself said that you and the DNC had put the thumb on the scales in favor of Secretary Clinton uh, and were not impartial uh, the way the DNC is supposed to be. And that these emails, when they came out, to their mind was proof of that. Um, does he have a point? Don't they have a point? They don't have a point. The, the, I'm very proud of the way that the Democratic National Committee, you know, during my tenure, ran the presidential primary. And it was run according to our rules, by the book. And ultimately, the outcome was that Hillary Clinton got more than three million more votes than Senator Sanders. And she is the nominee because more people voted for her than voted for him. Um, we did nothing to put our thumb on the scales. Now, did those emails, which by the way, I'll just remind you and remind everyone that this was our 21st century Watergate. You had Russian spies break into our network, steal our data and our emails, download them, and then transfer them to a, uh, an organization led by a criminal um, who released out of context about 19,000 of them. And so what those emails showed, and many reporters have commented on this, um, that we had some frustrated staffers who definitely expressed that frustration in their private email. And there is no organization or company in America whose private email exchanges, in context, out of context, would survive a spotlight, a national spotlight that, like that. Because people do make comments privately, like they do in private conversation, that are not for public uh, d display. Any frustration expressed by my staff in private emails was not at all a reflection of the professionalism that they used and the fact that we followed the rules. And this was a result that was by the book. What about the people who would say that, you know, how is it possible that someone on the DNC staff could put in writing, in a private email, hey, why don't we make an issue of the religion? Well, that, uh, I was, what I was going to add was, other than that email exchange, which I was not a party to, um, and, and which in fact included an, a, an email reply from one of those staffers that the chair would never be okay with this, uh, because I wouldn't have. Um, that exchange, which resulted in the departure of the CFO, um, which was an appropriate uh, thing to have happen, was not okay. Uh, it was also not something that was ever carried out because it was an outrageous suggestion. I mean, Bernie Sanders shares the same faith that I do, and you know, questioning it or trying to, you know, anyone suggesting that um, you know, was, was entirely unacceptable and, and inappropriate. Um, we ran the primary by the book according to the rules, and you, know, you certainly had, I mean, but we also had staff that felt like we were under siege um, Bernie Sanders' strategy, you know, his campaign's strategy daily was when things didn't go well, 
they, um, you know, they tried to turn, turn it around on the DNC and use the DNC as a whipping post. And, um, you know, they did, they did that effectively. And we have hardworking young staffers who wanted to do nothing but make sure that we could have a nominee eventually at the end of the primary that would be in the strongest possible position. And these are not highly paid individuals. They're working hard, you know, practically around the clock. And so, you know, they're all human, and mm -hmm. people express things in, in human ways. You mentioned earlier that um, you use the word lightning rod when talking about about y yourself. Well, that's how that's how others spoke about me. I don't feel like I was a lightning rod. But if I was going to be a lightning rod during that convention, then it was important for me, for the focus not to be on who the DNC chair was. But, I mean, if you do a Google search and look up stories about you, but you, you were a lightning rod, and it seems like from almost the beginning of your tenure as Democratic Party chair, um, the knives were, were out for you. There were the stories about clothing and stories about losing the face of the president and all sorts of things. Um, since what going back as far as what 2011 2014 last year well 2011 was the year I was appointed so it wasn't uh, it wasn't all the way back to 11 but from about 20 late 2013 and the negative stories were relentless in any kernel of truth to any of them none none and you can as evidenced by the fact that there isn't a single person who ever spoke on the record I mean, when you are going to throw, hurl an accusation at someone, if it's true, you know, you have the courage to say it out loud and put your name to it. Um, I think anyone knows that anyone that knows President Obama knows that if anything like that that I was accused of were true, that I, I would not have been the DNC chair for as long as I have. I mean, as long as I was. I mean, I was chair, you know, for the remaining for the remainder of, of Tim Kaine's term, and then President Obama asked me to serve a full four-year term. Um, we worked very well together. I have tremendous respect for him. Um, he called me Tuesday, mor uh, Wednesday morning, to congratulate me on my primary victory, and I expressed how much I appreciated his help. Um, we told each other that we, you know, will always have one another's back, and he he told me I should get some rest, <laughs> which I. You know, we'll, we'll do my version of. And no, no truth to the rumor that he called you during the DNC and he was the one who said, Debbie, you've got That's to. That's absolutely untrue. That did not happen. Did not happen. There is no one that asked me to step down. I took myself out. Now, I had conversations with a number of different people, uh, obviously, about what was going on. But no, that, that's, that's simply not true. I spoke to President Obama after I decided to step down, and he thanked me, he thanked me for my service, and you know, they issued a, a very kind statement about my tenure and, uh, and looking, for, about, you know, looking forward to continuing to work with me as a member of Congress. You know, in preparing for this, you know, obviously I've done all my research, I've written about you, I've reported on you, so I didn't have to do much, but something popped out at me. There are three people in the Democratic Party who are guaranteed to get the easy fundraising fodder for the right. Uh, you've got House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. You've got Democratic presidential nominee, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And you have Debbie Wasserman Schultz. But of those three, only one catches hell from the right and the left. 
why do you think why do you think that is? Why do you think you like engender so much passion, for lack of a better description? I, you know, the only thing I can attribute to is when you are working hard and you're effective, you are going to attract people who have a different opinion. Um, I mean, I kept my head down. I focused on working hard to do my job on behalf of the president and, and Democrats across this country. Um, frankly, the ire from the left was wholly attributable to the strategic decisions that were made by Senator Sanders' uh, senior staff. And any time things, things didn't go their way, they, you know, pointed at, they pointed at me. And so that was part of their strategy, to gin up their supporters by making a me a boogeywoman and, you know, the DNC their, uh, their enemy and their foil. So, um, but, you know, I, the way I looked at it was that's just part of the job. I mean, you, you, don't, you don't sign up for this work uh, to be carried through the streets on people's shoulders. You, you sign up for this work to roll up your sleeves and focus and do the best job you possibly can. My job was to focus on raising money, on mobilizing uh, voters, and on being a messenger for our party's agenda. Uh, and, and that's what I focus on every single day. Should a person running for president in a party be required to be a registered member of that party? That came up during the very beginning of the presidential primary, and there were a number of ballots that uh, Senator Sanders needed permission from the DNC, and I had to sign off on his um, appearing on a ballot as a Democrat. And, you know, I, I did so because I thought it was important to embrace anyone who wanted to associate themselves with the Democratic Party. So that's interesting. Particularly so, because in this case, Senator Sanders had caucused with the Democrats. I think it really depends. You know, Senator Sanders uh, you know, had a track record of affiliating with the Democratic Party. So um, I, you know, for all the talk about how I supposedly put my thumb on the scale, there, there certainly were times um, throughout the process where I, I really could have put my thumb on the scale. and because I felt it was important to really treat every candidate wishing to seek the Democratic nomination fairly, um, I, I wasn't going to throw an artificial obstacle in the way. So what you're saying is you could have snuffed out Senator Sanders' candidacy from the beginning if you wanted to. You could, by DNC rules, legally everything. It was possible to make it harder for him to pursue the nomination because of the ballots that he wouldn't have appeared on and certainly within, I mean our rules allowed for us to decide to allow someone who was not a registered Democrat to, to pursue the nomination. But yes, in the beginning we definitely could have made it more difficult. But you didn't? No, of course, I, of course not because we're a party that welcomes anyone who wants to associate themselves with us. I mean obviously if you want to be a Democrat, if you share our values, if you, you know, want to, to lead, our, lead our party. Uh, and uh, as the party's nominee, then we would fully embrace that. So long, in my opinion, so long as you had demonstrated a track record of over a long period of time of of identifying with our party's values and our agenda. And Senator Sanders certainly did in caucusing. I served with Senator Sanders in the House of Representatives, and he caucused with us as a, as a Dem with the Democrats, and he's done so in the Senate. So um, I, I really felt it would not be appropriate to, to, to 
throw any obstacles in his way because of that. Have you talked to Senator Sanders since the convention? I have not. Last question on the DNC. Should the next chair be an elected official? Whether it's the President of the United States who, you know, in leading the party chooses who the chair would be, or whether the DNC or the RNC without a, without a President in the White House has an election to choose from, the, from their membership, I, I think that, the, like in America, we, we, we have to have the, per, the person that the individual making that selection thinks is the best person for the job. Uh, my decision to accept um, the President's nomination was based on that I felt comfortable that I was going to be able to do my first professional responsibility as a member of Congress well be able to give my all to you know, serving him and, and the party as DNC chair, and of course being my children's mother. So I, you know, I feel like I was able to do that effectively for five and a half years, and I'm very proud of the, the work that I did, proud to have been asked. And you know what, I mean, moving forward, um, I didn't need a title to, to go out and do everything I could to help elect Democrats before I was DNC chair. And I don't need one now, and I'm going to continue to make that commitment. Well, speaking of winning seats in the House of Representatives, you just won your primary. Yes. And Tim Canova, you didn't just beat him. Like, you blew him out by nearly 13, 13 14. Per, 14, 14 percentage points, 56.8% yeah. to 43.3%. Why don't you think the Bernie forces, which coveted your defeat, failed to fight for it, and or let alone secure it? Well, they certainly... <laughs> through everything they had uh, at, at trying to do that. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think that I was confident and, and certainly hoped that I was right, that people in our community and people in almost any community, they want to be the ones to decide who represents them in anywhere, in the nation's capital, at, the, at City Hall, in the, in the state capital, and not have outsiders come in and try to influence or determine that outcome. And my opponent raised nearly $4 million, uh, spent every bit of it attacking me, uh, distorting my record, lying about my record. Um, and I've represented this, com this community for 24 years. I, I Both in the state, in the state legislature and in Congress? In the, right, 12 years in the state legislature, 12 years in Congress, and have knocked on thousands of doors. My first race, I knocked on 25,000 doors. I gave you know birth to all three of my children serving in public office. I. Um, very publicly shared the, my cancer experience with my community and with the nation because I wanted to be able to use my profile to help other people benefit from the experience and the, and the awareness that I had at that point. So I've lived very publicly and, and, and I think people here know me and um, lies and distortions and um, you know all the money that came from outside I think wasn't, uh, wasn't enough to knock down what people, re what people really knew about me, that I'd had their back all these years, that I'd been a strong voice for them, that, uh, that, uh, that they knew they could count on me. And I think that showed in the outcome. One of the things about Tim Canova that landed him in national news after his defeat was his concession, where he said, that, um, when asked by reporters if he conceded the race, he told them, quote, I'll concede that Debbie Wasserman Schultz is a corporate stooge. And what strikes me about that is that it's, it seems like we've lost a sense of civility. I mean, I obviously thought it was really unfortunate, um, but I, I wasn't surprised because that's really the 
um, tone and, and tenor with which he ran his campaign through the whole you know, eight months that he was a candidate. Um, I, I don't need a concession or a, you know, or a congratulations from, from him. The, the result was incredibly gratifying um, to, to be returned to Washington, hopefully. You know, I won the Democratic nomination and obviously I have, to, I have a general election as well. So now I'll have a chance to go out over the next two months and ask all of my constituents for their support and you know, the privilege of serving them once again. Um, but the, the tone and tenor of the political, um, the, the political environment has gotten really, uh, not just, intense isn't even enough of a word, um, really, uh, it's just, in, it's, it's so far in the gutter now. It's, it's, it's what's turning people off. And, you know, I'm, I'm someone who has spent a lot of years being very proud of being a liberal Democrat. I'm not just a progressive. I don't need to use the alternative word. I'm a liberal. And I am not afraid to say it out loud, fully embrace it no matter what room I'm in. Um, and I have a liberal district, one with a progressive heart and one that has cheered me on and cheered others with the same agenda on in our community uh, for many years. But at the same time, these are people like so many across the country that want us to be able to work together. And so when you get to Washington, I think it's our responsibility, even though I have a lot of disagreements with, with Republicans, I've made a real effort to try to reach across the aisle. And you know, you, you have to ask yourself, how would the DNC chair, and I've been asked this many times, how would the DNC chair, who happens to also be a member of Congress, how would I be able to work with Republicans, pass legislation, be effective. I mean, you would think that I would be persona non grata in a, in a, major, a, a House majority. And especially when you're out <coughs> and, and you have to be a warrior for oh, the party course. where you are raking them over the coals. Exactly, which I did every single day. With with relish. Yeah, well, <laughs> because instances. I believe in our agenda and I don't believe in theirs. But every single issue that we deal with in Congress is not partisan. And so I always try, and I, I've spent a lot of years of the 24 I've been in public service in the minority. So, I mean, if I was going to be an effective legislator, tilting at windmills and, you know, screaming from the back row was, uh, was not the way to accomplish it. Have you, in your door knocking in in the campaigning in the primary, heard from your constituents uh, concerns about Zika and what Congress is going to do or fear that Congress isn't going to do anything about it. Yes, they, they are, the people that I represent down here are very concerned about it. I mean, we have well more than 50 cases now of locally born Zika. For months and months, I and other Democrats, particularly on the Appropriations Committee, we warned the Republicans that if we did not pass the President's $1.9 billion emergency appropriations request, that we were going to have locally born Zika in Florida. Every single appropriations markup I introduced an amendment with Rosa DeLauro and uh, Anita Lowy uh, to appropriate the $1.9 billion in the President's request, and they was defeated on party lines every single time. And when we first had the, when we had the first cases of locally born Zika in Wynwood and then in Miami Beach in my district, I said, look, this is, our, this is the I told you so moment. We knew this was coming. The Republicans have refused to do anything more on the House side than move over money from Ebola. <laughs> robbing Peter to pay Paul, and it's only $622 million when our public health experts at the CDC and NIH clearly say they need the full $1.9 billion. The money runs out at the end of September, and they're in the midst of trying to 
do the research necessary to develop a vaccine, and we're talking about pregnant women who are the most at risk, who could have babies born with horrific birth defects, including microcephaly. And the holdup now, I was on the conference committee, the holdup now is that we've agreed on the number of $1.1 billion, but the Republicans are so hell-bent on denying women access to the health care they need that they have added political riders defunding Planned Parenthood for a virus that is disproportionately harmful to pregnant women. Uh, this is how hell-bent they are on throwing any obstacle in the path of progress and working together and worshiping at the altar of the Tea Party. So what happens if the money does run out at the end of September? What's going to happen is the research on the vaccine is going to either halt or it's going to be significantly slowed and it'll be that much longer before we can get a vaccine in, in, in development to deal with the, the Zika crisis. And it will continue to exponentially expand. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, healthcare, obviously, is a, a, a big deal, a big issue in your district. Looking yes. here in your office, you've got yes. the, what is this brain that's over yes. here? The, what was it's, that, the Genius? It's the Genius Award the, from the National Stroke Association. Not because I'm such a genius, but because I passed legislation to help raise awareness about stroke prevention when I was a state senator. Um, and in your office in Washington, you uh, reveal that you have another award. Please tell me. So on <laughs> tell my the uh, what that award is. Uh, well, on my credenza behind my desk in Washington is uh, a golden uterus award, that is literally a golden cool. uterus. Um, I guess if I were is it in a glass box like the brain? Over no, here? it is. It is uh, mounted on a base, standing proudly behind my behind my desk. And I suppose if I were uh, a male member of Congress, it might be the Brass Balls Award, but instead you give a woman the Golden Uterus Award. And it was for, you know, standing up for women's health and, you know, fighting to make sure that women have the kind of access to health care that, uh, that they deserve and that the Constitution uh, you know, requires. I mean, technically, there's nothing stopping you from getting a Brass Balls Award if you move your attention True. there. True. Um, I, I, was, I was happy to, uh, I was honored to figuratively be presented with, uh, with, the, uh, with the female representation of, <laughs> of, of, of that idea. <laughs> um, so I can't um, not be here with you and not talk about something that has fascinated me, for better or for worse, for years. Uh-oh. Okay, we got to talk about your hair. <laughs> It's, oh, here it's we go. curly. It's, I mean, it's curly, Untamed. curly like now, and then it's curly like big, important right. curly. There's me, and, and then there's enhanced me. <laughs> right. Me you, on steroids. So this is natural. Yes. Yeah, na naturally oh, curly hair. You think I planned this hair this way? <laughs> I actually love my, I really like my hair. My, my uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an ethnic expression of, of who I am. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you a really cool st story that has happened to me numerous times. You know, as I've traveled the country and speak at conferences or am stopped in hallways, um, I've had so many um, either young Jewish girls or African-American girls who will pull me aside and thank me for wearing my hair curly publicly and for wearing my hair curly and sending a message that it is professional and okay to wear your hair curly. 
Um, there is so much pressure on women with curly hair to conform, to straighten it, to not be who we are. And I am who I am. And I am proud of who I am. I'm proud of my ethnic background. And I'm proud of the DNA that gave me this curly hair. And I'll tell you, I've been married to my husband for 25 years. And here's what he says. The few times I've come home with flat ironed hair, and people really like it. You know, I get a tremendous, in fact, you won't believe this. But you can go back and look at Roll Call. I made the front page of Roll Call, I think in my second term, when I first got my hair flat ironed. And there was like an explosion <laughs> in, in the Capitol that I, I had my hair straight. I came home at the end of that week, and my kids were little. So my son, um, I went into his room and you know, woke him up to say hello. He groggily sits up in bed, and then he realizes, sits up, bolt upright, and he's like, oh my god, change it back. <laughs> and my husband, this is my husband's ex expression for any time that I'd straighten my hair. He said, Debbie, I'm married, a, a brown, curly-haired Jewish girl, not a blonde, straight-haired shiksa. Shiksa is, is a word for a non-Jewish girl. And uh, I, I have not, uh, not looked back and, and continue to fully embrace my curls. But there are definitely people who have a lot to say. There have been columns about my hair. There have been... I mean, I'm serious, like a New York Times column about my hair. Not, any, not curly hair in general. Yours. Debbie Wasserman Schultz's hair. Specifically yours. Yes. But it was, a, it was, you know, a, posi it was a positive column. Um, <laughs> I can assure you not every comment is positive. So la last question. And we've talked about a lot of things uh, about the trials and the tribulations, particularly at the DNC. So the final question to you would be, what's your message to the haters? Um, my message to anyone, uh, whether it's people who, who express support and enthusiasm for the work that I do or who think they know who I am and spend a lot of time commenting you know, anonymously about it, uh, is that you should think through whether you really know a person based on who you're seeing on your TV screen. Um, and that the only way that we can actually make this world a better place and, and really use government as a catalyst to improve people's lives, which is a, the decision that I made when I made public service a career choice, is to, to not be crouched in attack mode every single time you don't agree with someone. And to think about whether the, um, the commentary that you're adding <clears throat> to the dialogue is constructive and is it gonna help us get things done. Um, but there are people that just let themselves get so worked up and caught up in the frenzy of an intensity of, of politics that it really, um, it impedes our ability as Democrats um, I mean, I can speak to people who criticize me um, as, you know, as, as on the Democratic side. It impedes our ability to make progress. And, you know, we should be training our fire on people on the other side of the aisle who are really impeding the progress and our goals to try to make the world a better place. And that's what I have always tried to do. That's the only reason that I'm doing this. And 
I, I have a lot of people that ascribe all kinds of other motives to what I do. Um, you know, they don't they don't know me, and uh, and the people that know me know that I'm always going to be there for them, and I'm going to keep on working and keep on fighting and tune out all the noise. Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, thanks so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.